message, baby. It's a sight to see you fade away. The world is a swimming. Catch your breath and leave me reeling. It'll get you in the end. It's God's revenge. Oh, I know I should come clean. But I prefer to deceive. Hey everybody, it's John. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. Okay, let's get the business out of the way. Find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. Send me a note via email at thehustlepod at gmail.com if there's somebody you want me to try and track down to talk to. You can find us on Facebook at The Hustle. Connect with us that way. You can stay in contact with us. You can send me a message on there. And find us on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast. Write a review. Tell your friends. If you like music, if you have friends who like music, if you like learning new music or learning about music you haven't thought about for a long time, that's what we're all about here. Okay, this week's guest is probably the biggest one so far for me. It's Dr. Robert, who was the lead singer of the band The Blow Monkeys. Still is, actually. They're back around now. The Blow Monkeys have been a huge band for me ever since they had their one hit in the States, Digging Your Scene, that reached number 12. You're listening to it now. It may sound familiar to you. Or, most casual people probably remember them because they had a song on the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, which that was never really my thing, although I was always very glad that they were featured on there, that way more people got to know them. But I have been a fan of Dr. Robert's solo material, of the Blow Monkeys as a band. I have everything that he's ever done. A lot of the people I've talked to for this podcast, I'm also huge fans of but maybe they haven't been around for a while or I wasn't as you know in-depth familiar with their entire catalog. The Blow Monkeys have been top of mind for me for nearly 30 years. I love them. Their second album, Animal Magic, is in my top 10, top five, maybe even top three favorite albums of all time. Now, Dr. Robert, he was really nice to me. He has a bit of a reputation of being a little difficult sometimes with the media. He plays the game by his own rules, and he's not going to do it any other way. And you, a lot of people respect him for that. I do. But he's not always the warmest with the media. But he was great with me, and he was very open and had a very regular and above-board conversation with me, and it was one of the highlights of my life. I'm really, really grateful for that. He spoke with me from his home in Spain. Dr. Robert, this is a huge honor speaking with you. Thank you for being willing to talk to me on The Hustle today. I always kick these interviews off with a, an anecdote about the band or about how I discovered them or whatever. I discovered you. I'm in the States. I discovered you about the time when everyone else did. And i got to tell you, Animal Magic, your second album, is consistently in my top ten favorite albums of all time. It might even, depending on my mood inch up to, toward the top five, maybe even the top three. It just depends. But I love that album so much. And as you can probably imagine with anybody who loves an artist who is as free and feels as free to do whatever they want as you are, 
there's moments where I love you and there's moments where you frustrate me. So it's an honor to speak to you. In fact, I was remembering a story where I remember walking to the record store near my house in Sandy, Utah, growing up, and I had just bought She Was Only the Grocer's Daughter on cassette with my own money, and I was probably 14 or 15 years old. And I remember walking home, listening to it on my Walkman, and what a, like, delicious moment that was, that I was listening to a band I loved, with, and I bought it with my own money. And I remember passing by some friends on the way home who were playing basketball, and they said, what are you listening to? And I said, oh, I just bought the new Blow Monkeys cassette. Anyway, there are a lot of wonderful moments in my life that, that relate to you and your music and your band. I'm honored. Thank you. Sure, sure. My first question to you, though, is that I get the impression that you're sort of conflicted about your past, especially the 80s past. Am I right about that? I wouldn't say I'm conflicted. Uh, there was a period where I found it difficult to listen to some of the records we made in the 80s purely because of the way they were made and the kind of production values of that time and the fact maybe that we were caught up in some of the kind of less savory aspects of the 80s, if you know what I mean. You know, the videos, the sleeves, the kind of look of things, I think sometimes detracted from the kind of intent of the music. But I kind of got over that, and I've come around to thinking and seeing it much more in perspective now, sort of 30 years later and still making records. So it bothers me less now, in fact, you know. And at the time, I was having a great time. I was, I was having a ball. I mean, I was always trying to do something different, you know, musically. Mm -hmm. I was always trying to sort of uh, fight myself first. But, you know, there, there was a good time to be making records, and we were lucky. We were yeah. one of the kind of few British bands that made it, even though it was only a short-lived kind of thing in the States. So we got to see that as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, I read yeah. somewhere recently that you don't even particularly like animal magic that much. Maybe you just have issues with the production. It's always funny when you read that. I mean, you know, it means the oh, world right. to me, and yet it's not really what something you're super proud of, maybe? I don't know. Maybe I misread that. Well, no, I don't know. I, I, I do like it. I mean, I think it, for me... It was a moment where I hit my stride as a songwriter, I think, mm, and mm -hmm. I started to kind of use some of the influences that were that had influenced me as a teenager, especially when I was a kid, really, especially the soul aspect of things, which didn't really come out in the first record. So I'm proud of it. I mean, you know, I, I can see from a distance I would do it very differently now, and I can see the naivety in some of the writing, but that's what gives it its charm, I guess. And you know, yeah. I'm not the best judge of that. I mean, we've reintroduced some of the songs into our set in recent times from that that we hadn't played for 30 years, and it's been real fun. Yeah, I noticed that. In fact, this actually enforces my theory, and again, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I, You know, you've, you've put out that live album recently. Of course, you're always, you probably always have to play Digging Your Scene, whether you want to or not. But I noticed that the other two songs that you played from the album were the two that are the least animal magic-ish to me, you know, those big bright horns and the strings and the, you know, that the dynamic between the brass and the guitar. So I, I get the impression that even if you, if you're okay with animal magic, you're okay with the stuff that you're, you're less okay with the stuff that matters as much to me. Of course, I'm making this all personal, but was that sort of one of the reasons why maybe you kind of started to morph into more dance music? No, not really. I mean, I, it, it wasn't because I was escaping it. I mean, purely on a practical level, it's quite difficult as a four-piece to reproduce 
you know, an 18-piece orchestra and a brass section. Yeah, good point. So you kind yeah. of have to do, you do, you strip it back to the songs. But we have done things like Aeroplane City Love Song and Forbidden Fruit and stuff like that mm-hmm. recently, you know, again. Okay. delving into other things like you know I nearly died laughing and things like that you know but you strip them back but in terms of moving on to kind of the more dance things that wasn't really a reaction against that that was just a natural you know I'm I'm always influenced about what's going on around me and it's usually where I'm living or who I'm friends with or whatever's happening you know I don't really um you know it's probably been to the detriment of me (laughs) as a band in terms of a career but You know, I couldn't I couldn't play it safe and just continue to make the same record all my life because it would be successful. It's not yeah. that important to me. Huh. So when you're starting to morph more into dance music, you personally are also getting into more dance music and listening to yeah. a lot of it and sort of wanting yeah. to participate in that genre as well. Right? Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, very early kind of house music that came out of Chicago, I actually picked up records when we were touring in America and it kind of, I like the attitude behind it. I like the hard-cooked, you know, basic production values. I mean, and, and and also, you know, there was a lot of cutting-edge stuff going on, and I was sharing a flat at the time with a DJ in Brixton uh, and my friends. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of things were going on that kind of coalesced into, into sort of reawakening, really, my interest in that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. When you look back now, I mean, just out of curiosity, do you have a preference? Because to me, the transition is pretty drastic. It happened marginally over albums, but if you listen to Limping or Animal Magic versus Springtime for the World, there's a very, it's, it's a very drastic change. Do you, when you go back now, do you feel conflicted about your dance period as well, or are you just fine with all of it? No, it I was don't. all just to part be of the transition. With you, I don't feel 
well, yeah, I don't feel conflicted at all. It's only music, you know. Okay. I love music. Yeah. I love all sorts yeah. of music. I mean, to be honest with you, the only the only alleyway that I never really went heavy metal, and that's not going to happen. But I mean, <laughs> it's not really. It's all music to me, and I, and yeah. uh, and I, I understand that from the perspective of somebody who really doesn't know us that well, the change within three years or whatever it was from yeah. animal magic to springtime for the world is pretty confusing. Because you swing a different way Doesn't mean that we're like night and day There's a place for you and a hope for me The understanding that can set us free And every now and then you hear them say There's no such thing as society It's an evil thing they try and make you believe That human nature's all about fear and greed And just because you swing a different way Doesn't mean that we're like night and day Across the Fairfax people Because they're living with depression and protests Do you wanna be? Do you wanna be? Gonna build springtime for the world Do you wanna be? Gonna build springtime for the world If the Justify the ends I'd only pledge myself to higher things To be consumed by life's frustration They dare not trust their own imagination And hope lies in the hearts of the young Who seek happiness and freedom Whoever can define a friend or foe The old traditions In retrospect, I can see that that, that probably was a great career move But, you know, I have to follow my heart And I still, sure. I still do feel that way I mean, it's, I'm lucky enough to still be able to do that as a musician, yeah. no matter, you know, how many people are buying the records, really. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I mean, you must you know. have the financial freedom. Again, money is a topic that comes up in this podcast. You must have had the financial freedom all along to just cater to every whim that you ever felt, right? Because you, there would be an audience there to support you. Again, this is all stuff that... Well, we don't see in the States, so we don't know. But out there in Europe, you're still doing degree. your thing. Okay. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I, I, we were never kind of in a million sellers, if you know what I mean. I mean, right. but I'm not complaining. I did well in the 80s as the songwriter in the group. So therefore, yeah. the publishing and stuff was good for me. But then, of course, I went through periods after that where it, it drizzled down to nothing, but you're still faced with the same dilemma about what it is that you want to do. So... To be honest with you, I'm not trying to sort of blow my own trumpet here, but I could never do anything musically for financial reasons. Mm. I mean, in terms of creating, yeah. you know, a song. It just yeah. wouldn't work for me. I don't have that kind of skill. Yeah. Okay. So you've just followed your heart all along, and whatever audience wanted to join with you, you're yeah, welcome. Listen, man, you know, I started off, I started off uh, busking, you know, in, uh, yeah. in Australia, and I may well end up busking again one day, but it's been a hell of a journey in between. Right, right. <laughs> That's good. Speaking of busking, I mean your solo stuff. I have a theory about that too. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna shower you with all my theories. I have a theory that you your solo stuff, obviously. I mean, you went from you know kind of the lounge singer vibe to the torch song troubadour vibe, and I have I, my theory has always been that. 
you did that because you wanted to prove to people. First of all, you're probably tired of the overproduction. As you've just said, you've kind of followed your heart wherever you went. And at this point, you're just over all that. And you wanted to show people you could play the guitar. As the boat pulled out to sea And I drifted into a daydream It was a vow I had to keep It kept running around in my mind I couldn't tell a soul about it I couldn't share my escapade I couldn't bear to live without it Even though I was afraid I didn't seem to have a choice And if you ask me, well I deny it I used to buy Because the guitar was never the primary instrument in the Blow Monkeys up to that point. It was kind of, it was always the horns and the strings and then the, you know, the dance vibes and everything like that. You, did you yeah. just feel like I got to strip this down and go completely back to basics? Yeah, I did, because after the group finished the first time in 1990, you know, the first thing I had to do was go out and play live, solo, completely solo, put the acoustic guitar in the back of the car, and me and my wife, Michelle, would just take off. And I was playing small venues, small clubs, and it was like starting over again, and people were kind of shocked for a start, first of all, that I could play guitar at all. They didn't even figure uh -huh. that I could. Right. Um, they, I, I don't know what they thought I was doing, but... Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, and it coincided with me moving out of London, taking a whole other journey, really, putting myself on a kind of, you know, education course about music as well, because there were, there were things that I, that I didn't really know much about, and I really needed to do some digging, some architects, some, some archaeology, you know? Yeah. All the way back. So I learned about different ways of tuning the guitar, different ways of playing. I, I studied people like Bert Jansch and, and songwriters like Fred Neal. When sadness fills your heart And sorrow hides the longing to be free When things go wrong each day Fix your mind to escape your misery Your troubled young life had made you turn To a needle of death How strange your happy words Have ceased to bring a smile from everyone how tears have filled the eyes 
of friends that you once had walked among. Your troubled young life had made you turn to a needle of death. One grain of pure white snow dissolved and blood spread quickly to your brain. In peace, your mind withdraws. Your death's so near, your soul can feel no pain Your troubled young life had made you turn To a needle of death And, and obviously Dylan leads you into a lot of that kind of stuff and, and it was something that I needed to do, you know and, Yeah And then find my own voice within that And my own way of writing songs again, you know Yeah Without yeah. any major record company without any string sections or blast sections or backing singers or synthesizers or, you know, big budgets, you know, really, right. really testing myself to see whether I could do it. I found your top 10 favorite album of all time list recently. Well, that changes all the time. I know. Mine does too. Mine does too. Except for Animal Magic, that remains in there somewhere all the time. Okay. But yeah, and, and, you know, when I look over your list, there's nothing on this list that sounds anything like the Blow Monkeys. There's T-Rex and there's a bunch of people I don't even know who they are. The Laughing Clowns and Fred Neal. Of course, now i got to go check these out because yeah. if Dr. Robert loves them, then yeah. i got to find out. But nothing on here sounds like, sounds like the Blow Monkeys. So there's a part of me that wonders, what would Dr. Robert do if it was up to him to do whatever he wanted? And it's the answer to that is your solo stuff. You know what I'm saying? The more acoustically based guitar driven, just you and the guitar. Is that you or are you the person who's all over the map and just follows whatever they want? I think it depends on when you catch me. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. we've just come off the back of, we we've just come off the back of making a, a new record that the Blow Monkeys put out in April. Yeah. Sort of like almost like glam rock, you know. Got yeah. bits of that in it, 
and I'm working now on a solo thing, which is which I've moved on to, which is all based on open tuned guitar. So I don't really know what I'm doing half the time. And it's all about just keeping yourself interested, finding something new to say. So all of those things are me. I mean, I think the key to being an artist or a musician, in particular, is that you don't you don't need to create boundaries and barriers for yourself mm-hmm. within which you have to keep, you know. I mean, you just, yeah. I don't see the point in that. That's not true to who I am. Maybe it's for some people. They're, they're very, you know. Of course, you're restricted by by the limits of your own talent, your own vocals, your mm-hmm. own guitar playing, your own abilities. But within sure. that, I try to explore every little corner that I can get to. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I get it, and and you're that kind of an artist. I mean, you you've talked, you've worked with Paul Weller. I know you're a fan of Paul Weller. I am too. Sometimes maybe they're into it, sometimes maybe they're not, but he just does what he wants to do, right? Yeah, and he's got, you know, Paul's a much, got a much bigger fan base. He comes from that whole, sure. you know, the Jam sure. were a legendary band in, in England, and, he, yeah. and Paul assumed a similar role to someone like Springsteen did in the States. You know, he's the kind yeah. of yep. the blue-collar hero he was at a certain point. And so he's, his audience are, you know, are big. Yeah. And what I love about Paul is that he's not afraid to challenge his audience. And they, they, his audience could be quite conservative, you know. And mm-hmm. so the idea that he constantly challenges them and gives them what he wants is his prerogative. If you want to hear the old records, you can just always go and put them on. Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't mean he's going to cater to that or to your needs. He's going to do what he wants. Now, no, because you... I think then you, you cross the line from then being an artist into being you know, an entertainer. And some people yeah, are very good, good at that. And they can give you, yeah. they can, you know, the Stones are great at that. The Stones are like, you know, this this amazing stadium cabaret act. Yeah, yeah, good point, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't switch and it up cool, too much, cool. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they don't, they don't play anything from that they've written hardly in the last 
25, 30 years. That, that doesn't matter. It's the Stones, yeah. you know. You don't really want to hear yeah. the Stones doing sort of house music, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Did you know Paul Weller back in the early 80s in the Blow Monkeys days, or did you guys form a relationship uh, later on? Well, I knew him a little bit because we recorded our first album at his studio, Solid Bond. So I was always bumping oh. into him, but I really became better friends later on when we met during the Red Wedge time. Okay, okay. That's what I, okay. I wasn't sure what the tra- trajectory was. How has that been? I mean, you've had, you've been around for 35 years. I imagine your path, I mean, Curtis Mayfield, Paul Weller, your path has crossed with some of your heroes many, many times over. How does that feel for you? What's, what's that experience like? Usually, I, I don't actually go chasing my heroes. But, but no, I don't imply. It, it, I don't mean to uh, imply that you chase them. But you're, you, you know, you, you, you've been in the industry. You might see them at a show yeah. or a, something like that. And then, you know, how's that been meeting your heroes so many times? Well, inevitably, you just connect with certain people, and with other people, you don't. And yeah. someone like Paul and Curtis, obviously, it was all about the music, really, in the end. And that was a lesson for me. That was something that I saw. The passion for the music in them never re- doesn't die, you know, and it was something that that gave me strength, really, to just stick to my guns. And sometimes when you feel a bit lost or when you feel that, um, you know, it's not going your way or whatever, you know, you, you can just find solace in the music. I mean, that's what it has to be about in the end. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Sure. So I wanted to ask you about the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. I'm a, I'm someone who grew up in the 80s and can appreciate most 80s things, but it has always made me super happy that you guys were featured on that soundtrack because it was exposing the world to a band I loved one way or another. You can be as honest about this or as vague as you want. I know this is kind of a personal question. That thing sold millions of copies. I've read anywhere from like 32 to 40 million copies. I assume that made you somewhat of a rich man. And if it did, 
the, the financial stability from that one interaction or transaction, I should say, is that what helped kind of get you through the solo years where maybe your audience had dwindled down or given you the freedom monetarily to do what you wanted to do? Do they go hand in hand? Is there a connection there? No, because firstly, I didn't write the song. Therefore, it doesn't matter how many million you sell, you don't make a lot of money out of Soundtrax. And all the money that supposedly was made on that record was put into the vast debt that we supposedly had mm. with our major record company through making all those expensive videos. So what actually <laughs> happened in the end was that it, they cancelled each other out. So I certainly didn't make any money personally at all out of that record. Really? Um, which I know people find hard to believe because it did sell 45 million. But we were on 0.00% of a percent on that record. Yeah. And when you add it all up, it doesn't come to that much. It all went into the pot, you know, which, which yeah. uh, that's, that tends to happen. So from that point of view, it, it wasn't a financial lifeline, but it's strangely the song that, that in a lot of places we're best known for, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think the guy who wrote it owes me one, but there you go. Uh-huh, yeah, okay. You know who Nick Lowe is, I'm sure. Are you familiar with his similar soundtrack-related story? Do you know this? No. Which soundtrack was that? He wrote What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, and a version of that song was included on the Bodyguard soundtrack that had that Whitney Houston, yeah. I Will Always Love You song. And the the yeah. legend goes, I could be, I could have this way wrong, but I've always heard he didn't even know that someone was covering his song, and one day a check shows up in the mail for like a million bucks because that thing sold like crazy. Now, maybe if you had written the song that was in Dirty Dancing, it might have been different, but I just wondered if you had a similar experience with, you know, no. soundtrack work. Well, that okay. is the big di- You see, that's the big difference. If you're the writer, then that's, you know, that's where the yeah. money is in publishing. We were not the writers. We were a band that was splitting yeah. things four ways, and the producer was on a big percentage, and by the time you take everything into, into account on those kind of soundtracks which record companies cut your percentage to, you know, you know, stupid, uh, yeah. then you don't actually end up with very much, especially if you're already in debt to a record company like sure. we were. That's just how it goes. If I'd written it, different story. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I know, I know that the writer made millions out of that, because, you know, oh, and sure. fair enough, he deserved to. He deserved sure. a great song. So I thought... Leslie Gore's version was much better than ours. I mean, we had no idea. <laughs> we were told that there's a soundtrack being made. I think they gave us £2,000 to record it. And oh, wow. we did it in the morning. We did yeah. it one morning before we went off on tour. And I said, yeah, OK, we'll do it quickly. I know the song. I love the song. And we just we basically recorded it almost live, I think. We overdubbed a few bits and pieces. And wow. that was it, you know. Gone in the morning, and I completely forgot about it. Wow. And I never saw the film, obviously. It's not really my sort of film. Sure, and, sure. Um, you know, Understand. and there you go. Yeah. Wow. Go. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I, you may have just said this and I missed it. Was that particular song picked for you, or did you pick You Don't Own Me? I picked it. I mean, they gave us a, they gave us a bunch to pick from, and that was the one that I picked. Okay, so they liked okay. It. I didn't think too much about it, you know. It, it was a sure. time when we were getting chucked all sorts of... Uh, you know, ideas for films and soundtracks and stuff. So it, it didn't stand out to me. It was just a song yeah. that I knew we could do. Yeah, you just tossed it off, went about your business, and it turned yeah. into this thing. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, a monster. 
Yeah. Wow. Your third album, She Was Only the Grocer's Daughter, that one, I get the impression that that one was sort of, I'm imagining the record company thinking, okay, we had some success with this last album. This one's got great tunes on it. It's even a little sleeker. It's more, you know, we can we can really do something with this. And so there was a, maybe an initial push to get it out there, and then it all of a sudden stopped. What was the what was your experience? Because I remember hearing it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Then baby, it's too late Yeah There's no hope for a hungry child Whose joker is wild They take all hope away By the end of the day Well, I just about had enough for the sunshine I remember hearing that on the radio and loving it and loving you and going and buying it, but I guess it was not that big of a hit, and there was even some political insider stuff going on behind the scenes, right? I've no idea what happened with that. I mean, in England, it was our biggest hit, and in Europe, in fact, it was a bigger hit than digging your scenes. But in America, there was some kind of political nonsense between RCA UK and RCA America. And we got caught up in that. And I don't even think it was released properly, you know, in America um, as a single. It certainly wasn't promoted, which I was really upset about because I thought it could have been a bigger hit than Digging Your Scene in America. And I was looking forward to sort of getting back out there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Were other bands affected by that conflict? Or did it... Most, I have a no lot idea. Of it, you have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. I mean, I don't really know what the what the problem was. Maybe the the American side didn't like the politics that were kind of coming out yeah. on the record, you know, because it's I don't know. But I mean, other other bands on the label at the time were doing okay. You know, you would meet yeah. bands like that in in yeah so, um, yeah of course. For some reason, we got caught up there. But you know, you see, one of our problems I think was that we never had heavyweight management. We didn't have that kind of business now, the big plan, you know, and the big guy, and we, we had the power because we were selling records, but we didn't have that big guy to go into the record company and tell them what to do, and you yeah. do need that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Have you ever, I mean, other than... Fault. I was probably, well, you know, that was, that, was, that was probably my fault. I was probably too difficult to work with. <laughs> <laughs> you know... In going back and and reading a lot of interviews with you and listening to a lot of interviews and stuff like that, I get the impression that you sort of don't care, that you're kind of doing what you want to do and you are what you are and deal with it. I don't mean to minimize, but but maybe I have that wrong. I don't know. Do you think that 
you would no, be no, difficult right. to work with? I, do, I okay. mean, the thing is, I, on the one hand, I don't care for being told what to do, but sure. I do care a lot about the world, and I do yeah. care a lot about people and and things within the world. But so much of the kind of the music business and entertainment business, to me, is so ego-driven, it's so petty, it's so yeah. pointless. I just don't have time for it. I would rather be playing on the street corner acoustic guitar seriously than have to mm. deal with... I don't want to carve out a career as an entertainer. I'm not interested. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. Leave yeah. that to someone else. It's, it's all too... It's all too that's, not, that's not what got me into music. You know, I, I like... You know, I like characters. I like people that express their humanity that somehow yeah. fuck up and tell the truth, you know. Right, right. Were you kind of so single-minded and focused at the beginning? Or did experience... I mean, you know, so many young people, they want to just be rock stars, you know? And then they get, then they become one. And these pressures and these politics make it really unsavory. And so then they come out the other direction with a philosophy more like yours but I'm curious if you because you were the driving force behind your band did you always sort of feel that way or did it did you get sort of you know tainted over time I'm not tainted I mean I've, I, I think they're tainted you know I, oh I, good I point think, okay yeah I'm, but look I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't ambitious that I didn't have somewhere in my psyche the idea that oh to be a rock star will be fun and all yeah. that stuff but you can't, it's an illusion, and as soon as you start digging into it, you see, you know, you see it for what it is. And to be honest with you, even though you, you wouldn't see it in our music, in my generation was the punk generation, there was, mm-hmm. was people of my age that were forming bands, you know, and so even though the punk thing obviously was a million miles away from us musically, the attitude behind yeah. it stuck with me, yeah. really stuck with me. So I, I did really resist as much as possible that kind of, you know, the big happy family, you know, thing of, of, right. of rock and roll. I just don't believe in it. I just think it's too conservative for me. You know, I can't, yeah. I can't join in with that. So, but, yeah. so fundamentally, no, I don't think I've changed at all. I think I've always, I've always had that. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on the political angle of your stuff because that's that seems to get brought up in like every interview you ever do. The one thing I do want to kind of focus on though a little bit is that, and forgive me if this sounds a little insensitive, I I really don't mean for it to, but you're straight and you're mar- you've been married to Michelle, your wife, who you've talked very lovingly about for many many years, for a long time, and yet it seemed like. In the beginning, you took up kind of gay issues as an agenda that you wanted to fight for. Maybe I'm way off. And so let me tell you a little funny story. So it never, I, I think when you grow up in the 80s, everybody looked, everybody wore makeup. Everybody look, had some semblance of androgyny to them. So I didn't really pick up on who may have been gay or straight. I didn't really care. I read a few years ago something that implied that, that you were gay. And I was like, really? I didn't, I never would have thought that. And then I go back and I'm reading just song titles like Wicked Ways or Squaresville or Forbidden Fruit.
starting to think, was there a message being put out here all along that I missed? And then taking your scene, obviously, having to do with AIDS. Then I keep reading, and, you know, years, years later, I read about all your loving talk about your wife, Michelle, and, and not that it would have mattered either way, but I was just, all of that was a way of prefacing, were gay political issues a hot topic for you, or what made you feel like you were taking them on? I don't know. Maybe I'm way off. Well, first of all, it was important for me to, to stick my head above the parapet and say something about that, because they, although I'm not gay, I was going to those clubs in London at that time, largely because they were the only places that were open after 11 o'clock. It's so fucking conservative. Yeah. And so you would hear music in places like Taboo, and you would hear, and, you know, a lot of my friends were gay. I mixed in those circles. It meant nothing to me. It meant nothing to them, but I was straight, and it didn't, it didn't matter. But they, they were political times because that community was being targeted not just by the tabloid press, but by the government in the UK. Yeah. So yeah. it was important, you know. Nothing more than that, really. I mean, the rest of you know, I, you know, I had fun with it. I like to keep people guessing, but it was pretty obvious to most people who knew me that, that, that I was straight. But what I was talking about was, was just as valid. I don't think you have to be gay to be able to write songs about that. Sure. Yeah, I was, there's, you've probably seen it or remember it. There's this great clip of you on American Bandstand. They don't show the performance. They just show the like minute and a half, two minute clip of Dick Clark interviewing you in between. And you're obviously kind of messing around with him, right? Kind of taking the piss out of him a little bit. And you kind of make an allusion to it. I think at the time, and so anyway, I just wondered, it sounds like you just like to be kind of provocative. Because, and it, it makes sense, you had friends, you were sort of in that scene a little bit as a spectator, you know, discussing the political ramifications of what was going on in, uh, in that area was important to you, and that's why you expressed it, right? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, I mean, look at Mark Bogan, my great, you know, hero when I was growing up, he wasn't gay, no. he was, he played with those images, he played with those looks, sure. I mean, I don't think, I mean, we've moved way beyond that. The Dick Clark thing, I mean, I just found him so weird. Wow, you got to be careful. That's uh, he's an institution, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. But you know, it was just—I hadn't met that level of kind yeah. of showbiz royalty before, and I didn't know how it operated. And as soon as the cameras are off, they turn off. It's like there's no yeah. one home. Yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't seen, you know, the psychological damage that fame can do, you know, up front, up close. <laughs> oh, that's great. Wow. That's great. I love it that you said I mean, that. No, I don't mean to disrespect Dick Clark or his family. Yeah. And I know how important and what a great man he was down the years. I just found him weird when I met him, you know. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. And I, and I think it's probably safe to say that he wasn't necessarily uh, – he wouldn't have been your target Blue, Blow Monkeys fan, you know? So he is. He's he's kind of a, he's an MC. He's out there doing a job, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, subsequently I met a few similar characters in England, you know, Noel Edmonds. And they're, you yeah. know, these kind of, they're, they're, they only come alive in front of the cameras, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, you mentioned the Eurythmics. We, you probably know there's a, David Letterman was a famous talk show host in, here in the States until yes. recently. And I remember he went to London to do some shows once. This was back in the mid-90s. And Annie Lennox was a guest, and she performed. And then at the, the they come back from a commercial break and to end the show and say goodnight. And he says goodnight and thank you, Annie, for being on the show. And she makes this face like, oh, my gosh, come on. 
makes this terrible face at him. And it got all this publicity. Why was Annie Lennox making such a terrible face at, and kind of dissing David Letterman? And it turned out to be for the same reason. Because during the two-minute or three-minute commercial break, he never said a word to her. And so he's, she thought the same thing. Oh, you're only really coming on you know, when the lights go on and you're pretending like you're glad I'm here when you made no effort to talk to me while the lights were off. And, I, and ever since then, he yeah. made an effort to not do that anymore. But anyway, yeah. okay, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, get, I mean, it, I, I, it's a strange phenomenon. That's showbiz. Yeah, it sure is. Okay, so you, um, I remember, again, when I was a kid, I would have been a teenager, and my babysitter, although not my babysitter, but the girl who would come and stay with us when my parents were out of town and stuff like that, her name was Lisa. And I remember her, she had some girlfriends over one of the times she was staying with me and my younger siblings and I remember her overheard her telling her girlfriends that she had gone to see Robert Palmer in concert but she had left before he came on because the only reason she really went was to see the blow monkeys and this would have been in Park City Utah Salt Lake City Utah 1986-87 time frame and I remember at the time I was probably too young to, I mean, I would never have been able to get myself to the concert on my own. I would have had to have my mom take me and that kind of a thing. I didn't even know you were coming. As far as I know, that was the one and only opportunity I would have ever had in my life to see the Blow Monkeys live in concert. And so I'm curious, have you, when was the last time you played in the United States? Anywhere? Well, the last time would have been on that tour, and we haven't really gone back since. Really, um, for, but we—it's not for want of trying. In fact, we're talking to people right now about doing one in New York, uh, one in Boston. But it's—it's it's something that we need to do, and we haven't. But that—that that was well. That tour, when was that? Eighty-six. That was. Yeah. So that would be the last gig. That the last time we played was in—it was in eighty-six. Yeah. Wow. So I guess there was just never any focus on kind of breaking in America. You had your hit. That would have sustained you a little bit, but there was never any kind of plan to build on that momentum, not a strong plan anyway. No. Was that yours? Like or was that saying, the... you know, we, didn't have, we, we didn't really have that kind of, that kind of strategic management plan. Yeah. You know? It was really up to me most of the time. And yeah. my head was taken up with, you know, writing, the writing, keeping the band going. You know, we were touring everywhere anyway. We should have, we should have gone back to America, and but that, that whole kind of thing with it doesn't have to be this way kind of put a stop to it, really. I mean, I yeah. did go, I did subsequently go over to New York and meet Clive Davis. Oh. You know, the legendary, uh, course. You know, Clive Davis, uh, and yeah. he was running, I think it was at Arista. Mm -hmm. And we were saying, I was saying to him, you know, you know, hello, Clive. You know, we, you know, we, we, we want to get off of RCA and come on to Arista, which was affiliated. And he sat me down in an office and played me a bunch of Barry Manilow demos. I, I figured at that point that we probably weren't singing from the same <laughs> hymn sheet, you know. Really? I mean, he's yeah. a goofy character, but it, he's always seemed to at least kind of have a finger on the pulse in some way, you know. But that was he trying to yeah. apply to you well, he that he had a, a different one. vision for you? I think what he was saying was he in his opinion he liked my voice, but he thought that the songwriting for America needed adapting and therefore he was playing yeah. Barry Manilow demos to teach to show me 
that some of this old school kind of brill building timpan alley schmaltz yeah not, you know the bad end of it i mean no i know uh, i'm with that's you kind of what i needed to do yeah and, um you know, me being headstrong and at the time still having lots of hits in England, I just thought this was ridiculous. You see, now I would I would go along for the ride. I'd be quite interested to see where he wanted me to go because, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I quite enjoy those kind of things now. But at the time, I wasn't interested. And, um, oh, wow. And I don't think he got us at all. Yeah, he, he would, it yeah. wouldn't have worked. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I, I mean, speaking as a fan, I'm really glad you didn't go that way then or ever, to be honest. Yeah, that, I just, I like you, I like you peppy, you know? I like you when there's, uh, when the music's upbeat and it's it's chugging. I don't I don't want uh, Dr. Robert, the lounge singer, the smoothie, I don't need that. I don't want that guy. Although if you did it, I would no, follow I just because I love you and I'm a fan, you know, just like anything else. But anyway, yeah, okay, no, so I, the... I don't, I don't see it coming yeah, good. Okay, please don't. Now, the band breaks up. Would you would you guys still have broken up if your level of success had been sustained or improved? Or were you kind of like the band sort of not happening as much anymore? I'm not feeling this style of music anymore. Let's just cut ties. Well, I mean, the thing is, we, we, we were still having hits. I mean, at the end of 89, in fact, 1989, we'd had... Choice was a hit, weight was a hit. Every morning when I wake up, baby, I get back on my feet again. And every day when I question what you do. You know, I, I didn't want to drag everybody else along. And Springtime for the World, to be honest, I should have done that as a solo album. It mm. wasn't really a band album. Really? So, I, I just think it was kind of like, it was time to, while we were all friends, we were still, you know, the, the very last gig we did at that time, at the time in country, was was one of our very best, actually. Yeah. And, you know, it just felt like a good time to end it, you know, without yeah. any... You know, no no acrimony, no bitterness, no nastiness. Sure. 
it enabled us to make to to stay friends and get back together years later. So it it was it was just the right time for a lot of reasons, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then when you come back together, I think that was 2007. Yeah. I read it. I I think I heard you say in another interview or something that you just felt like you kind of were ready for a band dynamic again. Is that really yeah. the motivator, or what's you know what goes into making those kinds of decisions? Well, I mean, part of it was that that I fancied, you know, I had I had been doing the solo thing with bands, but also a lot of solo stuff for a long time, and it, I felt. I felt the need to change things up and be involved again in a group, you know. Yeah. And there was really only ever one group that I wanted to do it with, and I felt like we had unfinished business that we could, that we still had something to say that we should get back to making records where it's just the four of us playing in a room, basically. You're winding the clock forward 18 years. All the kids have grown up. I'm not saying they've all left home yet, but they're they're all at an age where, you know, we were, everybody's got more time on their hands again. And it just, everybody kind of jumped at it, really. And it would never have occurred to me or anyone else to have thought about that before then. It just it just came at the right time. Yeah. And, you know, also, we, you know, we had we had the history. And so it was, yeah. and, and, those, and those songs, and, and I felt that we, to a certain extent, maybe we'd been written out of history. We needed to reclaim a bit of that, mm. a bit of the... A bit of the kind of the music, and and less about the the sort of touched up photos of me as a pop star, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Which had become the kind of that that had kind of taken over as the kind of as, as the emblem of what we were in a way, you know. And so yeah. I, you know, we had to reclaim our past. But the only real thing that that I insisted upon was that that we make new records. The whole idea yeah. of getting together is to make new music. Yeah. Glance, another sideways shuffle on a ceremonial dance to lead you out of trouble, drifting on the tide, a solitary vessel on a knuckle duster ride with only hope. On your side, it's a momentary. It's a momentary. It's a momentary fall. It's a momentary. It's a momentary. not just to kind of get on some nostalgia tip and do all those 80s shows and all that sure. stuff. It's to make make new records. Yeah, yeah. That's, and sure. that's, what we, that's what we're doing, you know. I mean, we've made four in the last six, five or six yeah. years, whatever it is. And I'm making, you know, a solo one and I'm going to make another Blow Monkeys album. And I feel that, that we're really kind of on a roll. And, right. and we're building up our audience again. And it, it yeah. takes an awful long time when you get, when you reform. You kind of, first of all, you have to battle your own history, you know? Sure, sure. I wondered about you know, that. People come in with well, expectations, right? You know, I'm enjoying being part of a band and playing gigs and doing that. I'm enjoying that whole thing more than I've ever, ever done, really. Even the, even the, even the traveling. I just don't, I don't take it for granted. I, I, 
you know, I still think it's a marvelous way to spend your life. Yeah, you know, being you're a lucky man. You're a lucky man. You've been able to do what you want. When well, you I think write, so, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've had to, I've had to fight hard for it, and everybody has. You know, you really have sure. to fight hard. But I have been lucky too. I've been lucky that I've, at certain times in my life, I've had enough people to give me an audience, and and that that gives you, yeah, gives you. I'm lucky. I'm not going to deny yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. When you start writing again, so you get back into the band dynamic, do you feel, and maybe the fact that you have a solo album coming out at some point, or that you're working on, maybe that answers this question, but when you're back together with the Blow Monkeys, do you feel like you have to write songs in a certain way or in a certain style? I mean, your your four recent albums are very different from the original albums, very different, but you throw in a cup, you know, you throw in some saxophone in there and suddenly it at least feels like the blow monkeys again, you know, your voice, your guitar, some saxophone, there's some benchmarks that pop up in these new albums where you're like, ah, that's the band I knew back in the day. So do you ever feel like you're constrained? That may be the wrong word because it implies that some, some uh, resentment towards your bandmates. That's not what I mean. But when you put the Blow Monkeys hat back on, do you feel as if you have to perform and write and act a certain way? Or are you doing whatever you want to do and calling it Blow Monkeys? No, I'm doing something which I think works for the four of us. I've tried to, especially on the last album, to sort of keep the singer-songwriter thing at bay, the acoustic guitar thing, to just to, to, to sort of to play to everybody's strengths, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's quite hard in this day and age to write for a saxophone. I mean, there's not yeah. many bands out there that have got saxophone. In. So, you know, you've got to really work hard for not to be cheesy. But I think we've done that. And I think, and I mean, you know, that goes back to my roots. I mean, the Laughing Clowns, a band you mentioned, you said you'd never heard. They were born out of a band called The Saints in, in Australia. Oh, I love The so Saints. Kind of oh. Yeah. Okay. Like a snake calling on a phone I've got no time to be alone Some are coming at me all the time You better think I lose my mind Cause I'm stranded on my own Stranded far from home Alright I'm riding on a midnight train but everybody does me the same With some light and of reflection I'm lost, baby, I've got no direction And I'm stranded on my own Stranded far from home Alright Stranded, I'm so far from home Stranded, yeah, I'm on my own Stranded Gotta leave me alone Cause I'm stranded on my own Stranded far from home Come on Doesn't matter when I do Play the man thing I can't do the, guy, the main guy, the, the Ed Cooper, the guitarist, and he formed a band. And then, and when I saw them, I thought, well, that's the blueprint that I want. Yeah. Like, the guitarists from the Saints, but they had the, the brass section that sounded like Fela Kuti or something, you know. So that's 
in my head still what I'm after sure. with the band, you know, but, but but with my kind of singing and my kind of songwriting. So I do write with them in mind, and I do write, you know, like I definitely feel that with the next Blur Monkeys album, we're edging much more towards a kind of funk thing, you know. I really feel that yeah, that's really that's where we're really good. That's what was that's <laughs> what we're strong at. I couldn't do that unless I felt it, you know. Yeah. And it also, you know, it gives me a lot more space to go and do some really weird things on my own that wouldn't count. Yeah. 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 No kidding. So it's cool. You know, it's cool. Okay. You probably can't speak for them, but are your bandmates cool with whatever? Or is it, is it, you're obviously kind of the creative leader and mind in the group, but is there any democracy going on? You're probably the wrong person to ask that question to because you might say yeah, yes, yeah, and they the may person. say something else. But yeah. you listen, we split. Every, I mean, obviously, I'm the songwriter, but everything else we split right down the middle. Every bit, every gig fee, everything we ever do, every. So you know, but it's 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 a democracy in that way, and we're like a family. I mean, they've all got shit mm-hmm. that they get on with outside of this as well. Yeah. And, okay. But when we come together, we've got this shared history. We've got this kind of shared you know, kind of ambition as well still. So we don't really analyze it too much. We, we aren't, the, we, you know, people really, have, they haven't actually been interviewed very much, Mick, Tony, or Neville. So nobody yeah. actually knows what they really think, uh, including me. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. You know, yeah, they're cool guys, but they keep their cards close to their chest and they all come yeah. down to the music. Yeah, maybe so I should track of, them down. It's sort of... It is a benign democracy, you know, uh, not yeah. a dictatorship, rather. So. Okay. So when you're out there playing now as the Blow Monkeys again, are the crowds bigger, smaller, different? What uh, is it the same group? Are you are you finding a new audience? I, I don't even have any sense being we, here in the States. Do your albums sell? Do they get played on the radio? What's going on? Well, yeah, they do, actually, surprisingly. We, we build up... You know, we're doing a lot of the stuff through sort of crowdfunding things, building up the Facebook. So we've got a hardcore. When we play in London, we sell out the the clubs in London that we play, but we're also playing a lot more festivals than we used to, just because there are a lot more festivals than there yeah. used to be. So we're actually playing to more people. But it's still the Good. same four of us. You know, okay. we, we don't have any, you know, there's no big production thing or anything. It's, sure. it's the four of us giving everything. Um... And I'm just dying to get over to the States, actually, again. I think oh, I think there is... I mean, it's been a long time, but I think people will remember us, and I think there's enough people to make it worthwhile. Well, if nothing else, I, it would, I would love it. So just think of me next time, Robert, okay? Think okay, of me and my feelings. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Okay. So just a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. Number one... We so one thing I, I I like to cover in this these interviews is when you look back on your career, what do you consider to be the highlight or the most amazing, the the most unforgettable experience, the thing that you just can't believe happened to you? Is it a gig? Is it meeting somebody? Is it the inspiration to write a song? Was it hearing yourself on the radio? What was that moment for you when that stands above all others? Well, I don't really have one, but if I had to choose one, I guess sometimes I remember when I was when we were making "Celebrate the Day" with Curtis Mayfield, and we did the vocal to that together.
Oh, I looked over at the other side of the screen and there's Curtis singing with me live in the studio. Wow. And wow. I had to sort of um, stop myself from having a little bit of a moment then, you know. You know, I was still very young and he was a he was a kind of a massive hero yeah. to me. Uh, and yet he, he made me feel so at ease um, that I didn't even think about it until that moment when we were at, when the record button went on and I was looking over it. And, I, and here's me sort of singing in my best Curtis Mayfield impression. Uh-huh, and there's uh-huh. the real thing over the other side, you know. Yeah, that would be one. Wow. That must be amazing. Good for you. And yeah. then um, yeah. do you have any regrets? Do you have um, – are there some things about your career that – you know, from a sliding doors kind of perspective, if this one little thing wouldn't have happened the way that it did, the butterfly effect wouldn't would be different. Is there any? Are there any regrets? Or are you pretty okay with where, how everything went down? I wish I'd followed up the Barry Manilow uh, career path. <laughs> You're, I, you can't. No, 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 no. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because who knows what what butterfly. Oh, Yeah, 
I think that's pretty much everything I wanted to cover, Robert. I just love you a lot. This is a huge, huge honor for me to be able to speak with you. I'm tall, and I had dark hair, and I wanted to look like you, and I wanted to play the guitar like you. And when I think about the music I love the most, it sounds so much like the music you make. So I just wanted to thank you because you brought tons and tons of pleasure to my life. For that you were That's a huge influence for me. That's very so. kind. there you have it dr robert boy i love that man so much always have always will in fact a little bit of information so when he called into the conference line that i record our conversations on he was having technical problems and he's emailing me while i'm on the line waiting for him to join saying i can't get in there's some kind of a problem i don't know if i've ever been more frustrated and anxious than I was sitting there hoping and praying that one of my musical heroes could get into the conference line so we could have that conversation. Stressed me out to no end and he was really great about it and didn't make me feel stupid. I do think he was yanking my chain about uh, Barry Manilow though. What do you think? Anyway, huge thanks to Dr. Robert. Can't believe it. All right, next week we are going to talk to Walter Ray. Walter was the lead singer of an alternative rock band in the late 80s called King Swamp. And they had one kind of minor hit on alternative radio called Is This Love? That was pretty much it. And I really liked them. I always wondered whatever happened to them because he had a great voice, a great look. They sounded a lot like NXS when NXS gets a little heavier, a little rockier. That's what King Swamp sounded like. So I tracked him down. He was so nice. And he's got a new project now. He hasn't made his living in music for like 20, 25 years. But he's got a new musical project now that is very unique and very interesting. He tells us all about it. So that's what's coming up next week. Huge thanks to Jan Makiewicz for producing this podcast. He's new to the team. We love him. We're thankful to have him. Please stick around and keep listening to some of our episodes. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. Years to keep-